Jean Giono tells the story of Elziard Bouffier, a shepherd he met in 1913 in the French Alps. At that time, because of careless deforestation, the mountains around Provence, France, were barren. Former villages were deserted because their springs and brooks had run dry. The wind blew furiously, unimpeded by foliage. While mountain climbing, Giono came to a shepherd hut where he was invited to spend the night. After dinner, Giono watched the shepherd meticulously sort through a pile of acorns, discarding those that were cracked or undersized. When the shepherd had counted out 100 perfect acorns, he stopped for the night and went to bed. Giono learned that the 55-year-old shepherd had been planting trees on the wild hillsides for over three years. He had planted 100,000 trees, 20,000 of which had sprouted. Of those, he expected half to be eaten by rodents or die due, due to the elements and, others have to, uh, and the other half to live. After World War I, Giono returned to the mountainside and discovered incredible restoration. There was a veritable forest accompanied by a chain reaction in nature. Water flowed in the once empty brooks. The ecology sheltered by a leafy roof and bonded to the earth by a map of spreading roots became hospitable. Willows, rushes, meadows, gardens, and flowers were birthed. Giono returned again after World War II. Twenty miles from the lines, the shepherd had continued his work, ignoring the war of 1939, just as he had ignored that of 1914. The restoration of the land continued. Whole regions glowed with health and prosperity. Giono writes, On the site of the ruins, I had seen in 1913 now stand neat farms, the old streams fed by the rains and snows that the forest conserves are flowing again. Little by little, the villages have been rebuilt. People from the plains, where the land is costly, have settled here, bringing youth, motion, the spirit of adventure. Those who pray are like spiritual reforesters digging holes in barren land and planting the seeds of life. Through these seeds, dry and spiritual wastelands are transformed and restored into harvestable fields and life-giving water is brought to parched and barren souls. In this story, the author has highlighted for us just how important prayer is to the work of restoration. Whether it is the restoration of the land, the restoration of an individual who has fallen away in one's relationship with God, or the restoration of a city, prayer is absolutely fundamental for any restorative work that God will bring about in this world. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. It is not an accident 
as we begin our study in the book of Nehemiah, that the first chapter in the book focuses on Nehemiah's prayer. For it is his prayers that will be the key to his success in restoring the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding its walls. What do I mean by restore? When you restore something, what is that? What are we doing? It means three definitions. To return someone or something to a former condition, place, or position. To repair or renovate, such as a building, a work of art, a vehicle, so as to return to its original condition. To bring back to a state of health, soundness, and vigor. The book of Nehemiah is about, or at least the first seven chapters are, the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and the community who lived within it. And Nehemiah starts this restoration process by praying. Absolutely fundamental. When God is going to restore someone or a community or a city, you will find that God's people are praying somewhere. Because that's how God is going to work. I'm reminded in James 5.16, it says this in the NIV translation. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's in a context of where a person is sick and needs restoration. And I ask myself this question. How was Nehemiah's prayer in the first chapter effective? Because this is what this chapter is all about. Verses 5 through 11 is all about Nehemiah's prayer, and the first four verses are the events that led up to it. So the subject is Nehemiah's prayer. So what, does, what made Nehemiah's prayer effective? Number one, Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because it was predicated on a deep personal concern or interest for the condition of God's people and for the city in which they lived. Verses 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. By the way, the name Nehemiah means God comforts or the Lord has comforted. That's what the word Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah means. The abbreviated name of Nehemiah is Nahum. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Nahum. Nahum is an abbreviation of the name Nehemiah, FYI. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa or Sushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Just to give some context of what's going on historically, you may recall that we have just finished a study on the book of Esther. So some of these language may be familiar to you, like Susa the citadel or Sushan. That was a fortress in which the Persian monarchs resided in Susa, 
it was a winter uh, it was a winter fortress for the Persian monarchs where they resided. In the summertime, they would go to a place called Ecbatana. So here we are in the winter months, and the Persian monarch is residing in Susa, and Nehemiah is there. Uh, we also remember in the, during the reign of, uh, during, uh, as we looked at the book of Esther, the particular king who reigned at that time was King Ahasuerus. His Greek name was Xerxes. Remember? The names sound familiar a little bit? Okay. The events in this book happen after the time of Esther. The king, it, it talks about being in the 20th year. This is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son. So he's now in power. So what you're about to read now in the book of Nehemiah, follow the events of Esther. And King Artaxerxes is the one that he's referring to when he says in the, year, in the 20th year of his reign. That's clarified in the second chapter. Anyway, what we're talking about here, what's going on here, is that in 586 B.C., the Jewish people were taken into captivity and their temple was destroyed by a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. He destroyed the temple and brought the Jewish people, many of them, especially those who had a uh, high social standing, brought them to Babylon into captivity. Poorer Jews stayed within their homeland. And there they were in captivity for 70 years. Until 539 B.C., a man by the name of King Cyrus, who was the Persian king, defeated the Babylonians. And so now the Jewish people are residing in an empire in which the Persians are in control. And what the Persian King Cyrus did is it issued a decree to allow all the people who were not native to the Persian empire, he allowed them to go back home. And they could rebuild their temples and rebuild their worship sites, and they could live according to their own religion. That's what King Cyrus did. When he made that decree, uh, a group of Jewish individuals led by Zerubbabel, a Babylonian name, brought them back. Zerubbabel led a delegation of Jews back to their homeland, 539, 538 B.C. Many years later, another band of Jews go back home, uh, led by Ezra, the priest, in 458 B.C., 13 years later, Nehemiah is going to lead another band of Jews back to the homeland in 445 B.C. What we're about to read now is before Nehemiah leads that third group of people back. So that's what's going on. The Jewish people, the Israelites had been in captivity. Some of them have gone back to their homeland. The temple has been built at this particular time, okay? And so he... Uh, his brother, Hanani, comes to him and says, uh, he wants to know how his people are doing, Nehemiah says. I want to know how my people are doing back home. Like any one of you who may have been away from home for a long period of time, and you're concerned about home, you want to know how your family's doing. I'm sure Nehemiah had family back home who may have went back, but he stayed in Persia. And so he wants to know how people are doing back home. And what's important to realize is that his prayer was predicated and based on a concern for the people who were back home. What's going to make prayer effective for you and for me is to have a genuine concern for those that we're praying about. That kind of goes without saying because how many of you have ever prayed for someone or something that you didn't have a concern about? 
doesn't happen. But he had a genuine concern for his people that was many, many miles away. And that lays the foundation and a basis of all effective prayer is to have a genuine concern for those whom you're praying for. Nehemiah did that. Secondly, Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because when he heard disturbing news concerning them, he prayed persistently. Verses 3 and 4. And they said to me, The survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here we see, he hears the news that the walls have been torn down and the gates are burned with fire and his countrymen, the people that he's concerned about, are in shame and they're in distress. They're in trouble. Why is that so concerning? Well, because the people are vulnerable without defense walls. He's very much aware of his people's past that the temple was already destroyed. Now the temple has been rebuilt. The second temple has been rebuilt. And now that temple is vulnerable. People could go in and sack the temple again, take its loot and take its treasure. The people were vulnerable to any enemy attack. So they were not in a very good position. When he hears about their condition and he hears about their, uh, the city, he weeps and he mourns and he prays persistently. The text says that he sat down and wept for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The phrase God of heaven was a Persian term that they would use to refer to a deity. Okay? The fact, the prayer that we're going to read is not an actual prayer. It's a summary of the kind of prayer that that he would have prayed over and over again. And so we're seeing that he was very persistent. When he says, when he says he was fasting and praying, he's saying, this is what I I have been doing for approximately four months. I know that it's four months because this is taking place in the month of Kislev, November, December. In chapter 2, he goes before the king and makes a request to go to Jerusalem. That happened in uh, Nisan, which is March, April. So throughout that whole time period, he's been persistently praying the major themes that we're going to read about in verses 5 through 11. The reason why his prayer was effective was because he was persistent in his prayer. How persistent are we in our prayers? We often will pray something one time or twice And then we give up on it. That was not Nehemiah. Persistency is key to be effective when we go before God and having him uh, answer our prayer request. It's persistence. It is important. This is seen in a somewhat humorous story between Jim and his son, Polly. Jim was weary of the bedtime struggle with his five-year-old son, Paulie. 
to eliminate the cat and mouse game of repeated trips back to Polly's bedroom one evening, Jim laid down the law. He told Polly there would be no more talk after they had said their prayers together, had the last glass of water, told each other good night, and turned off the light. Jim was certain his parental authority had corrected the problem when he left Polly's bedside. In five minutes, though, Polly was calling out for another glass of water. Jim went in, reviewed the rules, and told Polly he'd better go to sleep. Within five minutes, Polly was requesting more water. Jim increased his intensity this time and told Polly he would get a spanking if he asked for water once more. This time, Jim was convinced the issue was resolved. His confidence was shattered about five minutes later when little Polly said, Daddy, when you come in here to spank me, would you bring me a, a glass of water, please? Polly's persistence paid off. He got the water, and his dad didn't follow through on the, predicate, on the predicted punishment. Persistence is key to being effective and a successful prayer warrior. Fundamental. Okay? Now we come to the actual the prayer or the summary. Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because of his perspective in the midst of the problem. Verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Here he's in a, he's in a bind, not him personally, but his concern for the people. They're in a bad spot. And he doesn't know what to do. And the problem is big. When you have a city that is in ruins, what do you do? The problem can be massive. But he goes to his God and he says, Oh, great and awesome God. That's telling. Because in the midst of the problem that he's facing, he knows he's going to a God that's bigger than the problem that he faces. That is seen by the language that he's using. The perspective that he has is very important and is key to being effective in his prayer because he knows he's going to... Remember I said that the God of heaven was a Persian, a Persian phrase for a deity, but he's very specific here. He says the Lord God of heaven. He's living in a polytheistic society and he wants to make certain, I am praying, I am, I am praying to the one true God, Yahweh, the proper name for, for the God of Israel, the Lord Lord, you are bigger than any problem. Yes, there's a whole city out there that is in ruins and is vulnerable to the enemy attack, but I know that you are a faithful God and that you are a bigger God than any problem. That's important to be, effective, to be an effective prayer person. You have the right perspective in the midst of the problem. When we look at the cities in which we are hearing about on our news, there's a lot of problems. The problems are massive, aren't they? They're huge. I remember watching the news the other day, just past week, a news reporter, it was in Chicago. The news reporter uh, was going up to different people saying, how, how can we fix our city? What, what do you think we need to do to fix our city? And he went up to one woman, lastly, and he asked her, what, what do you think we need to do to fix our city, to restore our city? And she kind of looked away and she 
thought about it for, for about 10 seconds. And she says, honestly? Yeah. She says, prayer. What she was saying is that the problem in our cities are so big that the only one who's big enough to handle the problem is the Lord. The only one. What we see going on in our cities, do we think anyone has the wherewithal within themselves to fix the major problems going on in our cities today? No. There's only one who can fix that. And Jesus Christ is the only one big enough to fix these problems, to bring restoration to these broken communities. It starts with prayer. Nehemiah knew it, and he had the right perspective in the midst of it. God is big enough. He's big enough. Next, Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because he correctly viewed himself in complete solidarity with his people. Verses 6 and 7. He goes on to say, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Here he's clearly identifying himself with the sins of his own people. He's not making himself or separating himself from the people that he's praying for. He is in complete solidarity with them. And though he may have been in a leadership position in, Persian, in the Persian Empire, as we'll see, he never thought himself above those who were hurting and whom he was praying for. He was every bit as guilty as they were. And that is a very uh, important perspective to have as we pray, as we pray for the, the cities and those who we're praying for, we're no different than they are. It is Jesus, when he was baptized, or the fact that he was baptized is telling. He went to John the Baptist and said, you know, he wanted to be baptized by John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's ministry? Baptizing sinners. So why is he baptized? Why is Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist? Because he wants to identify himself with those whom he's seeking to restore. Jesus wants to identify himself with broken humanity. I can, I'm like you, yet without sin. To restore you, solidarity. We, when we pray for people and the cities or individuals, we are in solidarity with them. We're all the same. We're sinners. And he had that perspective. He never always saw himself in solidarity with them. God sees that, and that's the right perspective to have, and that's what makes our prayers effective. Thirdly, this is important. Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because his knowledge of God's promises stated in his word. Nehemiah had a thorough knowledge of God's promises that were stated in his word. Verses 8 through 10. He says, remember, remember God, remember I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. That last sentence is a reference to the time when God delivered the people with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from Egypt. And the second exodus was often referred to as uh, the, the, uh, the exile back to their homeland was seen as a second captivity, a second Egypt, if you will. He's using that kind of language. But what Nehemiah is doing is this. He says, Lord, you said way back when, and he's pretty much almost quoting Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 4. Nehemiah is in his prayer. He's quoting what God had said to Moses when Moses spoke to the people when they were on Mount Sinai. God told the people of Israel through Moses, if you are faithful to the covenant, I will bless you. But if you break the conditions of the covenant, I'm going to send you away into a land of captivity. The fact that they were set away into exile is a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his covenant. I told you I would do this if you disobeyed my instructions to you. But I said through Moses that if you are faithful and return, I will bring you back to the land. And Nehemiah remembers what God had said through Moses, and now he's repeating it back to God and saying, God, you said that if the people came back, that you would restore them completely. Nehemiah sees that they're not fully restored in the promised land. Yes, the temple was built, but the walls are down. The people are in disgrace. They're in distress. They're not fully restored. God, what happened to what you said in your word? What he's doing is he's making a case. He's making an argument because of his knowledge of God's word in Scripture. Do you pray making an argument before Almighty God? Have you ever heard of prayer in that way? When you actually go before God and use his word as a basis for making a case for God to act on your behalf? That's what Nehemiah is doing. And God wants us to see how Nehemiah is praying so that we can do the same in our prayer life. So that we could be effective. C.H. Spurgeon once preached a sermon called Order and Argument in Prayer. Based on the words of Job. Job 23, 3 and 4. Job suggests that we pray to God in the same way as a lawyer presents his case or her case in a court of law. What does a lawyer do in a court of law? The lawyer presents arguments. He gives reasons. He quotes legal precedent for a particular verdict. If a lawyer says, well, we'll just go into the courtroom and ask the judge for what we want and see what he says, I would say it's time for you to get another lawyer. A good lawyer always presents a case. You say, yes, but Pastor John, we're not, we, we regard God as a, as a father, not as a judge. Did you ever see the interaction between a father or mother with their children? Hmm? If some of you have young children and you told when your children were younger and you said to them, after church, we're going to go get some ice cream on, uh, after the service. Oh, the kids are all excited, right? Well, unfortunately, that Sunday, the, ser- the, the pastor decided, decided to give a, a real long sermon, which upsets your whole schedule for the day, right? So now when the sermon is over, the service is over, you tell your children, well, our schedule has changed a little bit because 
The pastor gave a long sermon. Now we can't get ice cream. But the child is going to say, yeah, but mom and dad, you said after the worship service, we could go get ice cream. The child is making an argument. He's making a case based on what his parents had said in the past. But you said we could. Are you not going to hold your word? This is what God wants us to do. Know my word so you can know what I have done in the past throughout history and then use that as a case to cause me to act on your behalf. If you're right with God and you make a case for him, you're going to be that you have increased your chances of God responding. If I say to God, Lord, you said that your word will not come back void and I've been preaching and I've been praying and I don't see anything happening. When are we going to see something? When are we going to see you at work in powerful ways? That's an argument based on what God has said in the past. If we want our prayers to be effective, know the scripture and make an argument respectfully and humbly. That's not disrespectful. When you go before a judge, you make cases all the time, but you still regard the judge as your honor. So it's not being disrespectful. This is what God wants us to do. Make a case. What have I said in my word? Do we know his word well enough to make a case? Effective prayer makes a case based on a thorough knowledge and understanding of what God has done in the past. Nehemiah's prayer demonstrates that. And lastly, Nehemiah's prayer to restore God's people would be effective because it came from a heart that was willing to sacrifice for the sake of his people. Verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. When he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man, what he's asking, he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of himself in the third person. Grant me success when I go before the king and make a request to go to Jerusalem and help the situation. That's what he's asking. The thing to remember is that he says he was a cupbearer. Now, what was a cupbearer in the Persian Empire? The cupbearer was a highly honored, distinguished position whose responsibility was to select the wine for the king and to taste it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. In those days, you wanted power, you protected yourself, and so you had cupbearers who would drink the wine to make sure that the king wouldn't drop dead for drinking poisoned wine. That was his job. And because he had access to the king, he, his position could be highly influential. There is extra biblical literature that, that indicates that the cupbearer in certain instances was second in, in terms of power and influence throughout the Persian Empire. So this was a very powerful, honored position that Nehemiah has. And he's, he's willing to relinquish it all to go to a disgraced people and help them. His prayer was effective because it came from a heart that was willing to sacrifice, in this case, a highly exalted position to go be among a distressed, disgraced, broken down people and city. And when we pray with that kind of heart, we increase the likelihood that our prayers are going to be, uh, that he'll respond in the way that we want because we're praying within his will. 
This is what Nehemiah does. And we know that his prayer is successful because he ends up going to Jerusalem as we see you next week. Nehemiah has clearly showed us how restoration of an individual, of a community, and of a city can happen. It starts with prayer, and he gives us an example of what to pray for and how to pray to be successful in the midst of a world that needs full restoration. As I think about Nehemiah and his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of those who are broken and distressed. I'm reminded of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who also sacrificed. And he also relinquished a high, exalted position. He left the throne room of heaven to come down into this world where the walls and people's lives are broken and the gates are burned with fire, where people are distressed and are disgraced because of sin and disobedience. Jesus was willing to do that for you and for me. This is the God that we worship, the one who left everything to be among us, Emmanuel, God with you and with me. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he blessed it and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. All is ready. All is prepared. Let us celebrate together.